Good evening and welcome to the second event in the 2011-2012 President and Provost Diversity Lecture and Cultural Arts Series. Now in its 12th year, this series offers the campus and our extended communities the opportunity to hear some of the most renowned scholars, artists, and professionals who discuss and exemplify excellence through diversity. Before our speaker is introduced, I want to thank Professor Don Huben, Chair of the Department of Philosophy, for his assistance in bringing our guest speaker to our campus. I also want to acknowledge the work of Edie Wall and my staff from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion who contributed greatly to this evening's program. And now, it is my privilege to call to the podium the president of The Ohio State University, a president's president, E. Gordon Gee. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. You are very blessed this evening, and I tell you why, and that is because of the fact that I have laryngitis. Um, and so I, I really apologize if I, uh, I, was, I was in Lake County and, uh, in, uh, on Lake Erie yesterday, and right in the middle of my speech, I lost my voice, and people applauded. It was amazing. So I, I am delighted to be here, and uh, truly so. And this is a very special occasion for us. First, let me, let me um, say that it's an honor for me to be part of this uh, this Compass project. Uh, I really want to thank uh, Professor Huben and his colleagues for having developed this, having thought about it, having put the energy and, uh, and a very sophisticated effort indeed. And, uh, and as you just heard from Dr. Huben, uh, the role of a great land-grant university is to provide context to, to the issues of the day. And indeed, that is precisely what we're doing. So it's an honor for me to be part of this. Let me say also, it's great to be able to welcome our very special guest, Jorge Castaneda. Uh, and uh, truthfully so, uh, there are few times in our lives when we are able to hear directly when uh, when, when we were able to hear directly, excuse me, from someone who helped implement a country's foreign policy. Professor Castaneda did just that as a foreign minister of Mexico from 2000 to 2003. Among his many accomplishments were strengthening U.S.-Mexican relations and increasing global trade opportunities. Since then, he has had, uh, he has had uh, a, a considerable influence around the world, and he's used his considerable experience and talents to educate the world on the importance of Latin America. He's authored numerous books on the subject, including the highly acclaimed Utopia Unarmed, The Latin American Left After the Cold War, which gave an unprecedented view of politics in Latin America after the fall of the Soviet Union. Professor Castaneda has also advanced uh, cooperation between nations through his work at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and through conversations with prominent international leaders. Perhaps more importantly, he continues to inspire the next gen uh, generation of leaders in his role as a distinguished professor at New York University. So ladies and gentlemen, as we explore the ethical, political, and economic issues facing the world, it is imperative that we seek out people who have firsthand experience working through complex problems. Jorge Castaneda is one of those people, and so we are honored, and indeed I am personally very honored to uh, to be to welcome him this evening, and so will you please enjoy me, join me in welcoming uh, Professor Jorge Castaneda.
thank you, President. You thank you all, Professor Rubin, for the invitation, for the opportunity to share some thoughts with you on such a central issue for both of our countries, for Mexico and for the United States, and of course for, in fact, countries all over the world. Uh, we have a tendency, all of us, in our insularity, we in Mexico, United States, and every country in the world, to think that what happens in our countries is special, is unique, is exceptional. But if there is one issue which is increasingly common to a great number of countries, all over the world, either as sending countries, or as receiving countries, or as both, it is a question of immigration. And so it's with that spirit that I would like to share some thoughts with you, specifically on the US-Mexican issue or <clears throat> expression of the immigration debate and the immigration conundrum, which is not a simple one to address, um, especially now that it has once again become a central issue in the US presidential campaign, thanks to two governors uh, with uh, some somewhat strange views on the matter. Governor Perry uh, from Texas, who should know better, and Governor Romney from Massachusetts, who should also know better, uh, but neither of the two do. Nonetheless, I think they're playing a very positive role by bringing the issue once again to the center of the national conversation in the United States. And so it's all the more important, I think, to be able to place this matter, <clears throat> place the issue in a historical context, if not a long historical context, at least a relatively recent one, <clears throat> so that many of the things that are said during this presidential campaign in the US do not surprise anybody because they've all been said before, and they will all be said again. The first point I want to make is that immigration, in the same way that it is occupying such an important place in the US presidential race now, uh, continues to be the most important issue on the US-Mexican agenda. If you were to just look at the press or watch the news, you would not get that impression you would get the impression that the single most important thing happening in Mexico is that we're all killing each other, which is not entirely false. But it's not the most important thing happening in Mexico, and it's certainly not the most important thing happening in relations between the two countries. The drug war in Mexico and US cooperation in that drug war <clears throat> and the issue of drug enforcement between the two countries, which has acquired such a high profile over the last three or four years, especially in the US media, in fact is a very minor issue compared to immigration. And I'll share some numbers with you on this to give you a perspective on this. <clears throat> According to the Mexican government, and the United States authorities have now more or less accepted this, the total value of the deal as they used to say on this television program a few years ago, well, a few decades ago, let's make a deal, uh, of the deal, of the drug deal in Mexico, is between eight and nine billion dollars a year. That's what is actually left in Mexico. That's what goes to Mexico from all of the drugs that are either shipped through Mexico to the United States or produced in Mexico for shipment to the United States. Maybe 10 
at most. Mexicans' remittances back home every year, even in bad years, are around $25 billion. So the economic impact of immigration for Mexico is two and a half times larger than the largest estimate of the value of the drug deal, of the drug trade in Mexico. It's hard to say exactly how many people are affected by immigration in Mexico because it's hard to really figure out the numbers. We know that there are roughly 11 million Mexican citizens living in the United States. And we know that most Mexicans have three to four family members because the average size of a Mexican family is around four people. I'm pushing it. Let's keep it below that, three. So that's between the Mexicans who live here and the Mexicans who stay home but have a direct family link to those who have left. That's about 30 million people. At the most, the number of people fooling around in the drug trade in Mexico are estimated to be around 200,000. And frankly, I doubt that. The numbers don't add up for me. But let, let's say it's, that's true. So as you see, the differences are just, there, there's no comparison. And I, I really want to emphasize this. Immigration is a fundamental issue for Mexico. By, uh, as you see on television, it's a fundamental issue for the United States. And it is the most important issue on the bilateral agenda. It is still the most important item that Mexicans and Americans talk about all the time. Fight about, talk about, negotiate, agree upon, or don't agree upon. It is the most important one by far. The second point I'd like to make is that the issues remain pretty much the same within the immigration debate. Things have not changed a whole lot since I was in office at the beginning of the decade and when with President Fox and President Bush we tried to reach some sort of an agreement between the two countries on a way to deal with the issue together in a cooperative manner, which didn't work, either because 9-11 came along and actually destroyed the whole process for comprehensible reasons, or because 9-11 was a pretext that was used by the Bush administration for not moving forward. At the end of the day, it's irrelevant which of the, true is, which of the two is true. The fact of the matter is that we had moved forward a great deal during 2001, 9-11 put an end to that. But the issues continue to be the same with some changes. At the end of my remarks, I'll come back to some of the changes. For the moment, all I'd like to do is say that the two fundamental aspects of the immigration discussion or conversation between the two countries remain the same. One what is going to be done with the six million Mexicans in the United States without papers and the other six million non-Mexicans without papers in the United States. We're about half of the illegals. When I say we, I say we as a Mexican, not as an illegal. Though I could be an illegal. Not that we wouldn't be able to be here, but um, there are six million of my compatriots here who have no papers. And there are another six million, mainly Central and South Americans and from the Caribbean, 
who also have no papers. This remains one of the two fundamental issues. What is to be done about it? I'll come back to this in a second about what the <clears throat> uh, solutions or what the ways out of this are. But this remains a single most important, one of the two single most important issues in the immigration debate. Trying to just sort of push that aside, say, well, why don't we just forget about this for a little while? Why don't we just make believe that those 11 million don't exist and see what we can do is not, in my view, a very intelligent way of doing things. There's one tendency which unfortunately has sprung up in places like Arizona, like Alabama. There's other, any other states that start with an A, it's probably going on there too. And which is particularly regrettable because it's, it's really nonsensical. And what it really means is, well, let's push the Mexican, the illegal Mexicans and other illegals out of our state. Who cares where they go? Well, unless they go back to Mexico or to Central America, they're just going to go to another state, like, for example, Ohio. They're not going to go home. So the new Alabama state law against illegal Im immigration is a draconian law. I think it's a mean and nasty law. But in any case, it's going to be a very ineffective law from a US national perspective, although it may be effective or counterproductive for Alabama, the same as Arizona SB 1070. Why? Because all, of this, all it does is push people out of Alabama or push people out of Arizona, but not back to Mexico. It just pushes them to Mississippi or New Mexico or California or Oklahoma or wherever, this closest state nearby. Why? Because someone who has come to the United States from Mexico or Central America, who has paid the smuggler three to four to five thousand dollars, who has walked through the desert of Sonora or swam across the Rio, you call it Grande, we call it Rio Bravo, who has gone through over the fence around Ciudad Juarez and El Paso, is not going to go back because things are rough in Alabama. Not going to do that. It's just not going to happen. What that person, a Mexican, a man or a woman, will do is move to another area of the United States and look for work elsewhere, perhaps leaving the children behind, perhaps finding less of a good job than he or she had where they were originally, perhaps create generating new tensions in a community where there were no Mexicans before and when all of a sudden there are Mexicans in a place like, for example, a uh, county in Ohio I visited a couple of few years ago uh, where you have your own Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Butler County. Nice guy, I'm told. Um, this, these type of attitudes get us nowhere, get the United States nowhere, get Mexico nowhere. But with minor differences like these exaggerations or these uh, extremisms in certain states of the United States, the situation remains the same as it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and as it was in 1986 when President Reagan signed into law IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which supposedly was supposed to put an end to the immigration problem granting amnesty to more than three million uh, illegal foreigners in the United States. The first issue is 
amnesty. Without amnesty, or whatever you want to call it, there is no solution. Now, amnesty can include and should include some sort of quote-unquote punishment or penalty for having violated U.S. laws. By the way, it's just a misdemeanor. This is not even a major felony. But there should be some sort of penalty, if only because many Americans and many other people outside the United States wanting to come to the United States would consider it to be unfair for people who came to the United States without papers, got in, were amnestied, and jumped to the front of the line without having to pay a penalty. But Mexicans and Central Americans and people from the Caribbean would be more than willing to pay the penalty to come out of the shadows. It's just, a, and in that sense, the American respect and highly respected respect for the rule of law would be uh, in, in place, would be respected also. No one is saying that they should be amnestied, period. They should be amnestied and made to fulfill some sort of penalty and comply with some sort of requirements. There is no other way out. Alabama and Arizona state type of laws will not force Mexicans to go back to Mexico. No Mexican who has come here is going to go back willingly. Doesn't exist. Even the most rabid fans of the end of immigration today, and I'll come back to this, agree that people are not going back. They say they're no longer coming. We'll see if that's true, but no one says they're going back. The other side of the equation, and there there have been important shifts, is what to do about what is called the future flow. Because supposing President Obama in his second term, which I hope he will get, signs into law a bill approved by the House and Senate granting this amnesty with penalties that I'm referring to. What happens the next day? The next day, anywhere between 500 and 1,000 Mexicans jump over the fence and come into the United States anyway. The same 500 to 1,000 that have been coming in over the last roughly 100 years, same ones. They have no reason not to come to the United States just because the people who are here no longer are illegal. If anything, they have a greater incentive to come because they can bet reasonably so that sometime in the future the same thing will happen to them as those who in 86 were amnestied created an incentive for those to come later. The only way to address that issue is not to stop immigration from Mexico and <coughs> excuse me, Central America, but to make it legal. It's not going to stop because the wage differentials are too high. What can be done is instead of it being illegal, make it legal. And strangely enough, this is what the Obama administration has been doing without saying so. As they say, for example, in the case of Libya, leading from behind, this is leading in secret. It's a way of leading, not the best way, but it's a way. The United States Embassy in Mexico City and several of the other main consulates have increased enormously, multiplying by two and perhaps more than by two, the number of H-2A and H-2B temporary worker visas that they have been granting 
year after year after year. These go back a long, long, long time. H2A is for work in agriculture. H2B is basically for services and industry. When I was negotiating these issues with the Bush administration, Colin Powell and, and Condoleezza Rice at the NSC back in 2001, Mexicans were getting between the two about 120, between 100 and 120,000 visas a year for temporary worker permits. That's what H2As and H2Bs are. The number today has gone above 250,000. When you hear people say that immigration, emigration from Mexico, or immigration from Mexico, illegal immigration from Mexico has diminished, it has. But one of the reasons is that legal immigration has increased, which is exactly the point. That's exactly what we've always wanted in Mexico and what a lot of people in the United States have wanted. For many reasons. First of all, because it's bad for Mexico, bad for the United States, bad for everybody for this immig these immigration flows to be illegal. Secondly, because if they are legal, they have more rights. Mexicans with legal status in the United States can defend themselves against exploitation, against abuses, etc., much more effectively than if they are illegal. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, they drive wages down less in the United States. We have seen, for those who continue to believe that if Mexicans did not come to the US illegally, Americans would do the jobs that Mexicans do. We have seen over the last year that for a series of reasons, Americans don't do the jobs that Mexicans do. Frankly, I would like to ask you know, the students here at Ohio State University, a quality university, you, would you really like to spend your summer washing dishes in a New York City restaurant without air conditioning for five bucks an hour? Is that really what you'd like to do next summer? Somehow I don't think so. And somehow I don't think Americans are willing to do the stoop labor in the fields harvesting American produce. And I don't think Americans are willing to work on construction rigs and con buildings all over the United States at low wages and in very precarious situations. Would I prefer that both Mexicans and Americans do this under better conditions with higher wages, union contracts, collective bargaining? Of course I would. We all would. But that is going to be difficult. What is not difficult is that Mexicans will do these jobs. Why? Because they continue to be far better paid than what any Mexican can make in Mexico. And so that is why Americans are not taking those jobs. And that is why the increase in the number of legal immigrants from Mexico has gone relatively uh, undetected, but at the same time has been so effective. And this is a huge change that the Obama people have done. I don't really know, quite honestly, if it's a conscious change. Maybe they just decided to expedite the process and give more visas away more quickly. Maybe they decided to do it as a strategic policy uh, to help Mexico and also to make things easier in the United States for people. I really honestly don't know, and they don't want to talk about it. Because the last thing they want to do is have the Perrys and Romneys of the world, not to mention the Bachmans and Keynes of the world, uh, <clears throat> on their case about increasing immigration from Mexico. But this is what has happened over the last year or two. 
So this is the second part. Any solution to the immigration issue, it has to include a clear policy for future flows. The United States is going to need more and more low-skill, low-wage labor from abroad as time goes by. Not less, more. The fellow by the name of George Friedman, not Thomas, George, who writes for a thing called Stratfor, who owns a thing called Stratfor, Strategic Forecasting, and who wrote a book called The Next 100 Years or The Next 50 Years or something like that. And he came up with this very catastrophic scenario whereby the United States will be so desperate for Mexican labor 50 years from now that it's going to invade Mexico in order to get more people, and then Mexico will fight back and will win and you will lose, which is a lousy idea because it's always better to lose a war with the United States than to win one. If you lose, you get a whole bunch of money. If you win, you get 20 years of ostracism like the poor Vietnamese, so not a good idea. We prefer to lose. In Mexico, we have this saying always, the best thing we could do, declare war on the United States, lose, and then get a bunch of money. Not gonna happen, unfortunately, but Friedman's idea has something to it. It's exaggerated, it's sort of silly, but there's something to it. The something to it is that the United States is going to need more and more <clears throat> unskilled, low-wage labor from abroad. And this is, by the way, probably the United States' greatest competitive advantage in regard to other countries in the world today, particularly in regard to the European Union, but also in regard to China, whose population is aging at a rate that can, is now becoming absolutely uh, dramatic, which no one had foreseen. Although it's the logical consequence of the one child per family or one child per couple policy dating back to the 1970s. The United States has the advantage over Europe and paradoxically over China that it has been able to keep its population growing and young thanks to immigration. And this is an extraordinary advantage in the world economy today. But more importantly, and this is a point, fourth point I'd like to stress, which is a delicate and complicated one, and I'd like to do so in as sensitive a way as possible be, be, because I would not like to be misunderstood or misinterpreted what I'm saying. The United States has a double advantage over the Europeans in this field. The first advantage is that, of course, it has a continuously rejuvenating population, thanks to immigration from all over the world. But remember, half of every, half, one of every two immigrants that comes to the United States legally or illegally every year comes from Mexico. One out of every two. But the second advantage is that all of these people who come here have fundam a fundamentally common worldview or civilization view as Americans do. Of course, we speak Spanish. Of course, we, I'm not, but we are Catholic. Of course, we eat food, I think it's very good. Some people think it's too spicy, whatever. Of course, we like soccer, Americans like football, okay. Of course, yes, we uh, like sort of strange music that can be both noisy and not necessarily as rhythmical as uh, Cuban or uh, Venezuelan or Colombian music. Okay, we, got, we have our things. 
But at the end of the day, Latin American immigrants to the United States share many fundamental values and views of the world. And in particular, Catholic or not Catholic, Latin Americans and Mexicans who come to the United States see religion as just religion, each one having their own. Think about the complications the United States would have, the social difficulties it would have. If, like France, it had one-tenth of its population who were Muslims, if there were 30 million foreign-born or foreign-myth Muslims in the United States today, in as equally a respectable a religion as the Catholic religion, the Jewish religion, or no religion, just as respectable, just as brilliant, just as contributing to world history as any of the other, but with one fundamental difference. It's not just a religion. It's a way of being. It's an existential structure, as good or as bad as any other. The Europeans are going through a tremendous crisis because the immigrants that they have been forced to bring in over the last 30 or 40 years have been had to come, with a few exceptions, Ecuadorians and Colombians in Spain, and that's about it, that, and very few, have had to come from countries and religions and backgrounds which are very different. This is not the case for the United States. I think that it's much easier to deal with immigrants who are like you in this sense, not ethnically, not linguistically, not religiously, obviously not racially, that makes, that's the least of all these matters, but with a different worldview. There is such a thing as not a clash of civilizations, but difference of civilizations. It's a difference. No, one is not better than the other. They're just different. And ask the French, or the Germans, or even the Brits, and the Dutch, and everybody else, how they are managing with the situation that they have created. It's an incredibly difficult issue to manage for them. The United States, in this matter, should really count its blessings. Let me move on to one last point on the similarities between now and before, before a couple of final reflections <clears throat> on two issues which have become very much a matter of discussion uh, in the US recently. The political equation continues to be the same one in the US today for immigration reform as it was in 2001 when it was more a matter of a, an agreement between the United States and Mexico as in 2006 and 2007 when the Bush administration made a real honest and sincere attempt to get comprehensive immigration reform done and failed. But they didn't fail because they didn't want to. They really wanted it. They wanted it badly for reasons of conviction. I think in this case, President Bush really had his heart and his mind in the right place, not necessarily on other issues, or rather, certainly not on other issues in my opinion, but on this issue he did, and for reasons of convenience. The numbers are incontrovertible. 
if the Republican Party continues to only get 20 to 30 percent of the Latino vote in this country, and Latino vote continues to turnout continues to grow, and the Latino electorate continues to grow, well, the Democrats will start out with an advantage of five to six points in the popular vote every presidential election. Starting out of the gate, it's like you have a horse race, and one horse starts out about 30 or 40 yards or even more, 100 yards ahead of the other one. It's very difficult to win that way. And the Republicans knew this, and Bush knew this, and Karl Rove knew this. For whatever reasons, and they tried to get it done, and they couldn't. I think they made a big mistake by waiting too long. Bush himself acknowledged that he should have done it at the beginning of his second term, instead of this nonsense of reforming Social Security by privatizing it, which went nowhere. Uh, he acknowledged this later, too late. But the fact of the matter is, he tried and couldn't get it. The equation remains the same. There is no way to get immigration reform done in the United States without a small but not insignificant number of Republicans on board. You can't do it. The numbers don't add up. First, they don't add up in the Senate. You need 60 votes. You know you're going to lose about seven or eight Democrats, the so-called bulldogs or whatever. They're not going to go along or whatever you want to call them. There's always going to be seven or eight Democrats who will not go along with something like this. So you need seven or eight to 10 Republicans to go along. Without that, it can't be done. And the same is true in the House. A bit less so, because there you don't need the supermajority, but you have more Democratic defections in the House. So without Republicans, it can't be done. So then the issue becomes, how does hopefully for the next four years after next November, a Democratic president get enough Republican votes to get this done. I have absolutely no idea. Nor does Barack Obama, by the way. Nor does anybody else. Nobody knows how you get it done. But two things are clear. One, if you don't do it, you get more and more of the nastiness which we see every day. Now this ridiculous, I mean, you all heard the the nonsense that Kane came up with the other day about. Now he wants an electrified fence, probably with automatic machine guns posted every there and now, because he said if they get through the electrified fence, if they still get through, then we got to shoot them. Obviously, he didn't mean it. He didn't know what he was saying. But it's not just the silly season of the campaign, because people like Kane and others may think that they're just joking and not take this seriously. But there are a lot of nuts in a country of 300 million people like the United States, or in a country of 120 million people like Mexico. There's a lot of nuts in both of these countries, and more than enough nuts to go around, to actually believe this sort of stuff. They may not act on it, but they may believe it. So the only way to avoid this is to get the reform done. And it can't be done without Republicans. I have no idea how you get it done with Republicans, but without them, you can't get it done. And this is something progressives in the United States or liberals in the United States or Democrats in the United States have to understand. And it's been very difficult. I remember a New York Times editorial when the 2007 attempt by Bush finally went to a vote in the Senate, which was so lukewarm, so damning with faint praise, so tepid, frankly, that you, know, you had, almost had to be a crazy Democratic senator to vote for something like that if the New York Times was telling you basically this is the worst reform that they could ever come up with, but okay, why don't you vote for it anyway? 
with that kind of encouragement and enthusiasm, it wasn't going to happen. And by the way, it didn't happen. American liberals, Americans who are in favor of immigration reform, have to understand it's not going to happen without the Republicans. I don't like that, <laughs> but that's the way it is. That's the way the numbers are in this country, and that's the way it's going to have to be. I think that it's important to make that very clear. How you get this done, especially now when you have the problem of Republican Latino legislators, is becoming even more complicated. Because Republican Latinos can be of two different stripes. They can be conservative Republicans, but nonetheless essentially of a Mexican-American origin, like the new governor of New Mexico. Or they can be of Cuban-American origin, like Senator Marco Rubio in Florida. And the problem with a guy like Rubio is very simple. It's not that he's conservative. It's that he's Cuban. And there's a fundamental difference between Cubans and every other Latino in the United States, that any Cuban who sets foot on American soil automatically becomes legal since 1965. That's the difference. They also happen to be more fun and have a better sense of humor than the rest of us do. But that's a different story. Uh, they just set foot in the United States, and they're legal. So the last thing the Cubans care about is immigration reform. They got their own immigration reform 45 years ago. Their very own reform just for them. Obviously, they're not worried about that. So Marco Rubio is not a Republican senator, is not one of the eight that Obama needs. He's an adversary of immigration reform because his constituency doesn't need it. But of course, he's a Latino advocate against immigration reform, of which there's not a lot. And that complicates matters even more. Let me conclude with two quick reflections, one about what's going on now, and two about something that I talk about at length, not at length, but uh, to some extent in this new book I just published, Mañana Forever, Mexico and the Mexicans, which, by the way, you can buy outside. Commercial is always good. The first one has to do whether this is coming to an end. The last few months there has been a trend among specialists in this field who know much more about it than I do. To, uh, to the tune, basically, of saying that for a series of reasons, the drop in immigration from Mexico and Central America, which we've seen the last two or three years, three or four years, is structural. It's the end of an era. For practical purposes, the problem has come to an end. I think, though I, as I say, I'm not an authority in this field, I think they're confusing a structural trend, which is real, with a momentary dip, which is momentary. Why is there a structural process here involved? Well, because we know, or we think we know, since the middle of the 19th century, that young people emigrate more than middle-aged or old people. That the propensity to emigrate is much greater among younger people, 15 to 25, 15 to 30, than people between 35 and 45, for all sorts of obvious reasons and other no, not so obvious ones. And the Mexican population is aging at one of the most rapid paces that has ever occurred anywhere 
in the last four or 500 years. The, rap, the drop in Mexican fertility and the drop in Mexican demographic growth has been absolutely amazing over the last 15 years. And this has brought an incredible aging of the population, which is probably also a product, by the way, of previous emigration. If the young people leave, then the average age of the remaining population grows. Country gets older. Country gets older, fewer people emigrate. This is one fundamental reason why there is a structural process involved here. And if Mexico continues to do better economically, socially, et cetera, we don't kill that many people anymore, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have these sorts of shows in Ciudad Juarez, in Acapulco, et cetera, with people beheaded every weekend and that sort of thing. If we sort of can leave that aside for a little while, probably the wage differential and the opportunities in Mexico will increase. This is the structural trend which is real. There's no question that over time, maybe another five to 10 years, the pool of potential Mexican immigrants will shrink. If the pool shrinks, the number will shrink. But I think those specialists who see this are confusing the structural trend with something which is much more <clears throat> uh, linked to the moment, which is the recession in the United States, especially in the construction industry. The sector of the US economy that had been attracting the greatest number of Mexican immigrants, legal or illegal, the last 10 to 15 years had been the construction boom. That's why Arizona became a Mexican immigrant state, which it had never been. There had been Mexicans in Arizona since time immemorial, but people did not emig emigrate from Mexico to Arizona. They crossed through Arizona to go someplace else. Nobody wanted to stay there. Rightly so, I think, but that's a different story. Sorry if there are any Arizonans in the, except for you. <laughs> but you just studied there. Um, now, they have settled in many places like Arizona and elsewhere. But what we are seeing in all of this is more, I think, a function of the recession in the construction industry and a few other key industries like this, Florida, Arizona, Nevada, Las Vegas. When I opened our consulate in Nevada in 2002, we had, according to the numbers that Senator Reid gave us, I don't know if he was right, 700,000 illegal Mexicans in the state of Nevada. Now, illegal Mexicans in Nevada is a non sequitur because I don't know who's more illegal than who. The ones who do the dishes or the ones who play at the, at the roulette tables. But that's a different story. This, I think, is more important than the other trend, which means, if I'm right, that if and when the United States economy recovers, and I stress if and when, I, though I think it will, but I know nothing about that, then thing, there will be an upturn once again in immigration from Mexico. And the last point I want to make is one which is paradoxical, but which is really very important. The Clinton administration, I think involuntarily, uh, without really thinking things through, in the mid-90s, trying to seek other objectives, began to put an end to what was called, or is called, circularity in immigration. 
that people from Mexico used to come and go, come and work in the United States, three months, six months, go home. Come back next year, three months, six months, harvesting, the building season, the resort season, the holiday season, go home, and so on and so forth. Basically do what I do at NYU. I come for three months, I make believe I work, and I go home the rest of the year and I hang out. That's what my other 10, 11 million compatriots would do every year too. When the Clinton administration increased border patrol enforcement, made it much more difficult to come to the United States, made everything much more complicated. Remember, the fence started with Clinton, didn't start with Bush. I like Clinton a whole lot, but he started it. He started it in Tijuana, from Playas de Tijuana all the way to Otay. He started it. Put an end or virtual end to circularity. Made it much more difficult for Mexicans to come and go. What happened? Mexicans stayed. They didn't stay in Mexico, they stayed in the United States, logically enough. Okay. What this meant, among many other problems, is that the life-changing experience that Mexican immigrants have in the United States was no longer as easily transmitted back to Mexico as it had been before. And that life-changing experience is an enormously positive change for Mexicans in Mexico. It's positive for all Mexicans, but it's especially positive for Mexican women in the United States. Because there is nothing more liberating for Mexican women than to come to the United States and work here on their own. And they come here on their own. No husband brings them, no boyfriend brings them, no father brings them, no brother brings them. And if they do, the minute they get here, they get rid of them. The boyfriend, the father, the son, the brother, the works. And they get their own money, their own income, their own, they live with their friends together, they go out Saturday nights together, they get a new boyfriend if they want one, if they don't, they don't. But they don't know, they don't owe anything to anybody. They begin to act collectively, together. They begin to be independent, to have the type of self-esteem that can only come from having your own income and nobody who you have to give it to and nobody who you have to tell to be accountable to. You don't have anybody to tell where you went. There's nobody to ask you where you went Saturday night. It's nobody's business but your own. This is an incredibly liberating experience for Mexican women, which only happens when they come to the United States. It used to happen when they went to work in the maquiladora plants in the north of the country, but that began to change with time. Now it only happens on the U.S. side. And perhaps most importantly, the one most important change that Mexican women experience when they come to the United States is that for very strange reasons, I, I grant you that, they trust and they call upon what many would consider the incredibly racist, oppressive, arrogant, abusive U.S. police forces, which is very confusing. The, th well, the last thing one would think is, is a Mexican woman who is being beat up by her boyfriend or husband or father going to call a U.S. policeman to do something? Yes. We have so many incidents of this sort, so many episodes, so many polls that show it that there's no question that this is what is happening.
This is the last thing any Mexican woman would do in Mexico. No Mexican woman in her right mind, if her husband or boyfriend or father is beating her up, would call the police. Because all the police would do is come in and join in the fray. And beat her up too. That's what Mexican police do. But for some reason, they trust the US police and they call them. And of course, the penalty for the boyfriend or the husband is not a minor one. It's being deported. It's not being thrown in jail. It's being deported. And they are deported. Every now and then, the woman who makes the phone call and has no papers either is also deported. That happens. But most of the time, Mexican women, like Mexican men, have an incredible amount of ingenuity to get around that sort of thing and find a comadre or a sister or a cousin who has papers who will make the phone call. You cannot, we cannot underestimate the importance of this change in attitudes, in behavior, in character of Mexicans in general in the United States and Mexican women in particular. And it really is an incredible shame that these changes can no longer be transmitted back to Mexico the way they were before because they can't come and go all the time. Call on the phone, but that's it. It's not the same thing. And this is one of the sort of perverse and I think un unwanted and unexpected side effects of the end of circularity. So for all of these reasons, I think that we should fix this immigration mess. I think we should fix it soon, sooner, better than later. Once the silly season of the presidential campaign is over, I think that it will be possible to sit down and get this worked out. I hope that's the case. And as a matter of fact, I even thank Governors Perry and Romney, as I said at the beginning, for bringing the issue back to the forefront of the American conversation, bringing it the wrong way, for the wrong reasons, with the wrong arguments, but bringing it to the forefront nonetheless. That's what we need, and by we I mean Americans and Mexicans together. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do we have some time for some questions? Absolutely. Right. Um, if you'd like, go, go ahead, but I, I only have one microphone, so I don't know what. In California, there aren't any Republicans anyway, so, <laughs> so they're not going to come from California. But um, I, th I had always thought, this is why I was so hopeful of what we could get from the Bush administration, exactly what you say, that a border governor, Republican governor like Bush, with impeccable uh, conservative credentials, could get this done more easily than a liberal Democrat. And then, in fact, that's what had happened with Reagan and Erka or Simpson-Rodino in 1986. Perhaps a Democratic president would have been unable to sign it. 
But Reagan could get away with it. He could get away with any of this stuff. The fact is Bush couldn't, partly because 9-11, partly because of Iraq, partly because he doodled with it. He didn't do it on time for all sorts of reasons. I don't know whether a Romney would have more possibilities of getting this done than Obama. I'd still rather have Obama be the next president of the United States, even if it means this doesn't happen. That's, but that's just a purely personal opinion because I have to spend three months of my time in the United States every year, and frankly, I just prefer him. But you may be right that a Republican has a better chance of getting this done because at the end of the day, he can get, or she could get, the uh, Democratic votes. That said, Obama got enough Republicans to get the free trade agreements with the Koreans, the Colombians, the Panamanians done. It's not a big deal. It's such a tiny little deal that, frankly, who cares? But he was able to get enough Dem uh, Republican votes to get this done. So it's not impossible either, I think. I'll lend everyone the microphone for a while. Oh, uh, my question is, um, you, you mentioned that there's been a strategy, or maybe perhaps not a strategy, but a tendency uh, towards facilitating immigration, legal immigration. Um, however, I know uh, from reading papers or whatever that there's, um, there's been an increasing amount of de deportations. Actually, this year there's been more deportations than any year before. And um, I wonder if you could answer to that, or what, what, you know, how that impacts the situation. The, the two things can be simultaneously true. In other words, it's the, the State Department people <clears throat> and uh, the labor people and Obama White House that do the visa stuff, and it's the Homeland Security and ICE and CBT who do the deportation stuff. Now, we've got to be careful with the deportation numbers. So if you see, a, you see a story in the New York Times or anywhere that says, Last year, 400,000 people were deported. And that that's more than ever before. That can mean one of two things. It can mean 400,000 people were deported, or it can mean 200,000 people were deported twice. In other words, that the people who enter are caught, sent back, try again, they're caught, and the third time they come through. It's happening even more and more. No, those are the turned away at the border are one, are one group. But, for example, I, I was in Ciudad Juarez the day before yesterday. It's become a new crossing point as they've closed off uh, Arizona and Sonora, and Mexicans and Central Americans are scared to death to go up through Tamaulipas. So they're crossing through Juarez. The number of deportees in Juarez, the people at the turnstile every day, has grown enormously. Is that because more, there were, there's greater enforcement on the U.S. catching them and sending them back? Or is it because there are more Mexicans trying to get through, through Juarez? Some of them are caught, but those who are caught are sent back to Juarez, and they try again the next day. I don't really know. My impression, there's a little bit of both. I don't like these, please, I don't like these numbers of greater deportations, but I'm sure you can enlighten us. I was just going to say there's two separate numbers, and the number that you're talking about at the border who are caught is 700,000 people each year. And then in addition to that, 
people who are apprehended within the United States and deported are, is the 400,000 number. But is, is someone who is apprehended 20 miles in and sent back to Juarez, to which of those two, those two numbers does that person belong? In the perimeter. Okay, the seven, it's still the, the same issue, then it's twice 700, is it one person, 700,000 people once, or uh, 350 people twice, or 200,000 people three times, which is it? I don't know, but I'm always a little wary of these huge deportation numbers, because we, we all know, and we've always known in Mexico, that an enormous amount of people try once, twice, and three times. They may not succeed even on the third time, but practically everybody tries at least twice or three times. Because you've already forked up a lot of money. You've already come all the way from Michoacan or Oaxaca or wherever you're coming from. You're already at the border. The last thing you're going to do is just give it up after one try, especially if you're not sent back, because still the deportation to the interior, to your hometown, remains more or less voluntary. I say more or less because there are people who are sent back against their will, but most of the deportations by plane or by bus to the hometowns continue to be voluntary, and most people don't take them. They opt out of them. They go just back to Juarez or back to wherever. So I don't know exactly what, what's happening with that. I think there was one over here and then over there. But um, I was wondering, it seems to me that having a circular migration kind of guest worker program just continues to exploit people for very low wages. And I was wondering what you think of the idea of having an open border, um, maybe for the whole hemisphere, with um, a minimum wage that's higher than the current exploitative kind of under-the-counter wages. I mean, in an ideal world, obviously, I, what, you, what you suggest is better, but uh, it's hard enough to get a migrant workers program uh, like the H-2As and H-2Bs or like the Bracero program from 42 to 65. That's hard enough. To open the border is, I think, desirable but unreal. In the same way, I think it's unreal to believe that there is any way to stop Mexicans and Central Americans from coming to the United States to work for lower wages than Americans want, but much higher wages than, than Mexicans get. I, I don't see how you can do that. The only thing I can see you can do is make it legal, not stop it. It's not going to stop until the wage differential diminishes greatly. Over time, that can happen. We know it happened in Western Europe with the Spanish and the Portuguese, basically between the 80s, early 80s, still there was an enormous amount of Spanish and Portuguese illegals working in Britain, in, well, in Germany, in Holland, in France, etc. When the two countries joined the European Economic Community, it was called back then, the wage differentials began to diminish, and today it's the other way around. Uh, there are no Spanish immigrants left in Holland. There are some Dutch immigrants in Spain because it's warmer, but... But that's it. So I, I think that's a more likely solution, though I agree with you. It does tend to depress wages in the United States. Yes, but again, whose wages does it depress? Are there really people who want to pick strawberries in the Americans who want to pick strawberries in the U.S. 
for 450 an hour. Thank you. Um, what do you think of the um, feasibility of um, the politicians starting to think in a more holistic way, not only dealing with it um, with the laws, but also um, kind of preventing with education, with um, more justice and more in both countries, um, more changes for the good, more uh, to make uh, bigger validity to human rights in both uh, countries. I think a lot has been done and can continue to be done, but I'm not sure that's going to change the fundamental immigration equation. I mean, the fact is you have six million Mexicans without papers in the United States. Whether your politicians change or don't change, whether things improve in Mexico or they don't, or here or they don't, there's six million Mexicans and 12 million largely Latino, Latin American immigrants in the United States without papers, and that's something that you have to address somehow. And there are still at least 250,000 more who come every year, illegally, well, keep coming. You can make them legal or illegal. Oh, by the way, Iowa is not a good place either. Iowa is not. There's too many immigrants there too. <laughs> okay, there we go. Now, we're, Wyoming. That's why Simpson. That's why Alan Simpson was able to draft the Simpson-Rodino law because there hasn't been a Mexican in Wyoming since the 16th century. <laughs> that's it. Those two. Maine neither. I have a question about the DREAM Act. In your opinion, what effect would the DREAM Act have in mitigating this crisis and potentially improving diplomatic relations between the United States and Mexico? Thanks. The DREAM Act was one of these dreams that a lot of uh, well-intentioned people in the States and to a lesser extent in Mexico thought was an alternative to, the comp to comprehensive reform. Okay, we can't get comprehensive reform, what I used to call the whole enchilada. Can't get that because there's no way. Okay, so let's forget that and let's do piecemeal. Let's do a little bit for ag jobs here, a little bit for students there, a little bit for this here, a little bit here and there. Which sounded very reasonable. If you can't do the whole thing, then do a little bit. Turned out that you have to spend the same political capital to get a small thing like the DREAM Act than you to get big thing like McCain-Kennedy comprehensive reform in 2006, and you lose both of them. <laughs> it's not that you spent a lot of political capital on DREAM Act, but you got it. Okay, maybe it wasn't the wisest investment of political capital, but at least you got it. Neither Bush nor Obama have been able to get it, and they've had to spend an enormous amount of political capital. So I think while it's important, for ethical reasons, reasons of principle, because it does make a difference for young people, and because it would send the right signal to Mexico and to, other, and to the United States and to the rest of the world that the U.S. is beginning to think this through a little more and be more compassionate and be more, uh, more principled and at the same time more um, effective in dealing with this. I think it's a great idea wouldn't make a big difference, and I don't think there's the political capital there is easier to use and get than for the whole enchilada. Thank you very, very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes.